All right, good morning. Man, it's good to be together today. Thank you, Stephen, and you guys for leading us in incredible worship today. I hope, I hope you're excited to be here. I know it's going to be a great day to be together. If it's your first time here, I hope you know, I want to say again, how grateful we are that you're here. We hope that you'll find what a lot of us have found, uh, that Riverside is a place you can call home, that truly here uh, we strive to be a faith family, and uh, we care about each other. And so we're glad you're here today. We hope we'll get a chance to talk with you and, and get to know you better. But we really are glad to be together to worship today. Today is a special day for a lot of reasons, but I want to start this way. I don't do this very often. But today is one of my very best friend's birthday. And so today I want to say happy birthday, George Hurd. Yes, sir. 88. Yeah. 88 years old. Only 88, a young 88, and and the Sooners won yesterday, so the best birthday present ever. Yeah, sorry to go to college football on you guys, but yeah, I know it's a big win for you, so congratulations. That's awesome, man. We love you. We love your family. We love you, Dixie. So anyway, it's going to be a great day, Um, and if you get a chance afterwards, you can take a candle and a cake to George's house, and I'm sure he'll be glad to eat that with you. It'll be good. It'll be good. Hey, so we are in the middle of a series on, on fear versus faith, and so if you've noticed uh, in our culture and the world around us, uh, it's a bit of a scary time. There's a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear. And the question that we're wrestling with as a church is what's our response? As people of faith, as people who claim to follow Jesus, how do we choose to believe in a time where uh, it's really easy to be, to be afraid? And I want to begin today with this question. Do you, remember, do you ever remember a time in your life when you felt like you were invincible? You remember that? Probably when you were younger. A time in your life when you felt like you were invincible. I've never told this story like here. Someone will tell it today, and, and it, it can't leave this room. So what's said in here stays in here, right? When I was in eighth grade, uh, I was on a, a middle school retreat with our church. And during free time, all the guys went back to this field to play football. And, of course, we played tackle football. Two-man touch was for, for wimps. We were real men. And so we were going to play tackle football. The only trouble was there were some high school guys that came on the retreat as counselors. And so... Uh, I'm on one team, these guys are on the other team, we're playing tackle football, having a great time, and all of a sudden, this kid on the other team catches an interception. His name was Ben Brown, um, he was in high school, I don't know his exact stats, but he had to be like 200 pounds, 6'3", giant of a, of a guy, you know, gentle giant, incredible neat guy, but he gets the ball and he's running down the field, and of course... All of us middle schoolers are parting like the Red Sea in front of him. No one, no one wants to tackle this guy. For whatever reason, I thought I could do it. Now, in eighth grade, I, you know, I didn't have quite the muscle mass I have today, clearly. <laughs> that wasn't a, why are you la- okay, Anyway. And so I, I run up to tackle him. Have you ever seen like a bug hit your windshield and you're going like 90 miles an hour down the interstate? That's about what this was like. I smash right into the bin. He falls down one way. I fall down the other way. Everybody gathers around. Ben thought, this is the gross part of the story, Ben thought he had busted his lip. He didn't. What happened was his teeth went through my ear. There's a notch in this ear, if you look real close. Um, It went through my ear into the back of my skull. 17 stitches later, after a trip to the hospital, uh, I was okay. My ear was salvaged. We're all grateful for that. That would look kind of weird. I realized that day I was not invincible. (laughs) And I never tackled him again. Um, I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you thought you were invincible and then you realized all of a sudden something happened and you realized, I'm not. I'm not invincible. Like stuff can happen to me. 
And what happens in that moment, there's a trigger that I really believe happens inside all of us as human beings when that happens. This trigger goes off and we begin to, to be afraid. We begin to, to worry. We begin to have concerns. We begin to think that, well, it's the question of what if. In fact, I'm, I'm becoming more and more convinced every day that the greatest fear that we have as human beings is the fear of what if. What if I can't handle it? What if I can't tackle it? What if, what if I fail? And it's not just failure. It's the fear of failure that has such control over our lives. And some of you know this this morning. Some of you parents in the room. Man, you're afraid you failed your kids. You failed as parents. And you're worried sick about them. Some of you husbands in the room, you're, you're afraid you failed as a, as a husband to your wife. You know what you signed up for and you know you haven't lived up to it and you're afraid and you don't know how to fix it. And ladies, I don't know, I'm just going to take a guess that some of you have, you're afraid you've failed as wives and you don't know what to do about that either. Some of you are afraid at work. You're afraid that maybe you're going to fail at work. You're not going to get the next promotion. You're not going to get recognized for your work. You're not going to make it. You're not going to cut it. You may have to get a new job. You may have to start all over again. You're afraid of failing, that the deal won't come through, that it won't happen the way you thought it would. And what's going to happen if it fails? And it's not just failure. It's the fear of failure that is such incredible control over our lives. There are so many things that we won't even try to do because we're afraid of what would happen if we failed. It's a reality. And the truth is, is that no one is immune to it. No one is immune to it. In fact, it happened to one of God's most famous prophets. And one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible is a story of a guy named Elijah. If you have a Bible, you may want to open up to 1 Kings. We're going to be bouncing around a little bit. It'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, 1 Kings 16, 17, 18, 19, there's this incredible story of one of God's most famous prophets named Elijah. Now, Elijah, just to catch you up on the story, I'm going to run through it a little bit because it's an incredible story. It's a long story. But Elijah was, was, a, was a prophet of Israel. He was a prophet for the people of God during the reign of a king named Ahab. Now, Ahab was a wicked king. Uh, he was terrible. <laughs> and normally a prophet's job, you know, in, in the days of Israel as a, as a prophet of God for the people of God, his job was to, to communicate the will of God to the king and to the people and to be that one, that voice of God, kind of, kind of guiding them and, and instructing them on what they should do. But in the event where there was a wicked king, uh, the prophet's job got really, really hard because he had to say some hard things and they weren't received very well because the king was evil and did evil things. This king, King Ahab, was an evil king. He was, he was a king who set up uh, idols uh, for worship to this false god named Bel. He was a no-name god. He wasn't even a real god. But he set the, the, these idols and these temples, and he, he brought in these priests and prophets to serve this unknown, this, 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 this fake, this idol of a god. In fact, he was so bad in 1 Kings 16.30. Listen, listen to what it says about Ahab. It says, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. This is how bad he was. He was the worst. You may, you may or may not know Ahab, but you probably have heard of his wife. His wife, her name was Jezebel. I ring a bell? Jezebel? She, she was bad. Ahab and Jezebel together were leading Israel down a path of complete destruction. 
Jezebel wasn't even an Israelite. In fact, this broke one of, one of God's other commands. First of all, Ahab and Jezebel are setting up idols all over, you know, Israel to worship some other God beside God. So they're breaking that law of God that said that you should worship me and worship me only. They've broken that one. Ahab, the king of Israel, goes and marries this woman from Sidon, this pagan woman who worships these pagan gods and brings her on as his queen. And together they are an evil couple. Now, I know some of you are worried about the presidential election. All I can say is it could be worse. <laughs> These guys were bad. And they were leading Israel down a path of complete destruction. When the Bible, it, you may have read this or studied this if you figured this out in your Bible. When the Bible repeats something, you know, it's really important. And so only three verses later, after the verse we just read in 1 Kings sixteen thirty, the next verse says this. Ahab did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. This is how bad Ahab and Jezebel were. No one had ever provoked God, our God, the living God, the one true God, to as much wrath and anger as Ahab was doing in this moment. And oh, by the way, Elijah, you get to be my prophet, and you get to, you get to fix all this. Yay. <laughs> And so what, what God does is he sends Elijah to Ahab, and, he, and here are his instructions. Hey, Elijah, go to Ahab and tell him, because of your wickedness, and because of the wickedness of Israel, because they are worshiping other gods, false gods, they're worshiping Baal, they're worshiping Asherah, they're worshiping all these pagan gods, that for the next few years there's going to be a drought. Now, if you're Elijah, and this is the word that you've got to bring to the king of Israel, you know this is probably not going to go well for you. Because in a completely agrarian society, a culture where, where you're dependent on water and rain, if the news is there's not going to be any water or rain, then that's devastating for your kingdom. I mean, you're talking about destroying the economy. You're talking about destroying your people. Starvation is going to happen. You've had zero time to prepare to make, to make provisions, to store up supplies. And all of a sudden, the rain is going to just stop. And you know what happened? It did. There was no rain. And Ahab is one ticked off king. So God, because he loves his prophet Elijah, sends him to a place of safety, a place of refuge. It's a really cool story. You need to read it. He sends him off to a a brook called the Kirith Brook right by the Jordan River. And he says, Elijah, I'm going to take care of you during this drought. And so drink from this brook. It's going to be good water for you. And every day, this is just a cool story. Every day I'm going to send ravens. This is how creative and awesome and crazy God is. I'm going to send ravens to you two times a day, and they're going to bring you bread and meat, and you've got water to drink. And that's going to be your survival plan during this drought. And Elijah says, okay. And he does this. And this happens every day, two times a day, ravens are bringing him bread and meat, and he's drinking from the water from the Kirith Brook by the Jordan River until the brook dries up. It dries up because there's been no rain. So now Elijah needs a new plan. So God sends Elijah, a crazy story, to Sidon, the very same town, by the way, that Jezebel's from, uh, to meet this pagan woman who is going to provide for him. He sees this woman, and she's a widow, and Elijah says, hey, uh, can you give me some bread to eat? I'm really hungry. And the widow says, well, I would, but I've only got a little bit of oil and a little bit of flour left. And in fact, I was about to make the very last little bit of bread for me and my son to eat. I have a son. And after we eat it, the plan is to die because we're out of food. And Elijah says to her, go ahead and make it, but share some with me. And this is what's crazy. This woman who's not from the people of God, who doesn't know anything about our God, has enough faith in the God of Elijah to do this. And because of that, crazy story. 
Every time she goes to pour out oil and to pour out flour to make bread, there's always enough for more bread. And this goes on and on and on. It's another crazy, miraculous story of God's provision for Elijah and now for this woman and then for her son. So this goes on and on and on until God decides to to send Elijah back to King Ahab with more news. So he's on the way back. And and again, you got to think about the courage that Elijah had to muster up just to go back and to face this king. Because now the economy is destroyed. Now people are starving everywhere. There is death everywhere. Animals are dying. People are dying. And Ahab blames Elijah for all of this. So God says to Elijah, go back to Ahab. Yeah, right. But he does. And he goes back to him and he says, hey, let's settle this once and for all. You've got your prophets of your false god, Bell, and, and of course, I'm a prophet of the one true God. Let's go meet on the mountain over there. Let's go meet on the mountain, and you set up an altar to, to your God. I'll set up one to my God, and we'll have a contest. And who, whichever God, you prepare your altar, I'll prepare my altar. Whichever God can send down fire from heaven to light the sacrifice on fire will win, and we'll all worship that God. And Ahab says, that's a great idea. So he gathers 800 and 50 prophets of Baal and Asherah together on this mountain. They prepare their altar. Elijah, flying solo, prepares his. It's a crazy story. You really got to read the story. And what happens next is amazing. All day long, these 850 prophets of Baal, they're worshiping Baal. They're calling on Baal to come down and to bring down fire from heaven. And by the way, they didn't think this was a crazy idea. It may sound like a crazy idea to you, but Baal was the god of nature. There were drawings of him with with lightning bolts in his hand. For them, it sounded like a no-brainer that absolutely Baal could, 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 could fling down a lightning bolt from heaven and light this altar on fire, and we would all go crazy worshiping him. They thought it was completely possible. But it's not happening. They're worshiping, they're singing, they're dancing, they're chanting. They're even cutting themselves, trying to get their God's attention. Elijah's over here kind of taunting them like a good Christian would do. And, and, and nothing's happening. This goes on all day long. And finally, Elijah realizes it's about the time for the normal sacrifice to the one true God of Israel. And so he says, hey, 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 all right, my turn, my turn. And listen to his prayer in 1 Kings 18, verse 30. I love this prayer, 1836. Elijah prays this in front of 850 prophets of Baal, in front of King Ahab, the worst king Israel has ever seen. Elijah says this to God. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. And what happens next is completely amazing. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. They put water around the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord, Yahweh, he is God. Amazing story, right? I love this story. You need to go back and read this story. And you would think after all of this that Elijah, having what was probably literally 
the most amazing mountaintop experience with God that anyone could ever have would be riding high. I mean, he had seen God deliver a drought. He had seen God feed him by the brook with ravens, with bread and meat two times a day. He'd seen God do this miraculous thing where every day there was more oil and more flour so that they would never go hungry, he and this widow and her son. And oh, by the way, I didn't tell you the part of the story where her son dies and then Elijah brings her back to life. Yeah, that happened too. Amazing story. Then Elijah goes up to Mount Carmel, has this incredible moment with God where God sends down fire from heaven and burns up the entire sacrifice. It literally happened and everyone fell face down and worshiped him. You would think that for the rest of his life, Elijah would be the most faith-filled, confident, riding high guy you have ever seen. Listen to what happens next. 1 Kings 19, verse 1. When Ahab got home, home from the mountain, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way that he had killed, oh, by the way, he killed all 850 prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Verse 3. Elijah was afraid. What? Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left a servant there. And then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. For I am no better than any of my ancestors who have already died. Elijah is afraid? After all he had experienced God do in his life, he's afraid because Jezebel made some empty threats against his life? Seriously? Why Why does he run for his life? Why is he so afraid in this moment? I think we have to acknowledge the fact, and maybe you've experienced this too, that there's this reality that no matter what God has done in our past, how amazing and awesome and incredible it it might have been, that we still feel fear in the moment. And right here, Elijah is just struck with fear. we're talking about fear versus faith. But fear, that, that's like this deep down, deeply seated human emotion that just comes out of us, that we just experience, right? We can't even control it. If someone jumps out from behind a wall and screams, you're going to jump, right? You don't respond and, oh, everything's going to be okay. No, you scream because <laughs> it scares you. That's your innate reaction. It's built into our DNA. It's at the core of who we are, this fear that comes out of us. Faith. Faith is a choice. But even then, why is, why is Elijah afraid? Well, after all he's seen God do, is he really afraid of Jezebel? He just saw God defeat 850 prophets of Baal. Why is he afraid of this one woman? Is he afraid for his life? He's already experienced God raise one man from the dead. Why wouldn't he think God could do that for him if that really, really happened? But what is, what is Elijah really afraid of? I think a clue is found in that last verse we read. Let's read it again. 1 Kings nineteen fourteen. Elijah sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Then listen, take my life, 
for I am no better than any of my ancestors who have already died. What if, what if what Elijah was really, really afraid of wasn't death, wasn't Jezebel? What if he was really afraid of was being a failure? What if he was afraid of being a failure in a long line of failures? What if he was afraid that he had failed God just like every prophet before him in his mind had failed God? And some of you may even know what this feels like. Like you, it's one thing to be a failure, but when you feel like you failed God, it's one of those things that, and how do you come back from that? Have you ever, have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt this Discouraged, this depressed, this dejected, just done. Like, like you're just done. You can't do it anymore. You failed, you flamed out, the story's over. And you're just ready, you've checked it off, you've told God, just take me now, I'm, I'm done. I'm tired. Maybe just like Elijah, you're sitting under this broom tree and you're like, It, it seems like even after you've experienced God's, per, God's presence in the past and his activity in your past, it's hard to remember that he can be active in your present. It, it's hard to remember, I think, for us that even if you've experienced God on the mountaintop, that he's in the valley too. And for a lot of you today, you, you, you may have been to a mountaintop and now you're in a valley and you're wondering if God is there. You may have experienced God and had a really high moment with him. It's one of those watershed moments where you just felt like he was so close you could touch him. And now you're in a valley and it seems like he couldn't be further away. And what makes it so real for us as believers in Jesus is that we know, we know that this happens. This is hard on our faith. Whenever we experience victory only to find defeat. Whenever we have a watershed moment with God only to be discouraged and to realize that the trouble is around the corner. As some of you have experienced this. You've, you've walked out of marriage counseling and you feel like, man, things are finally working between me and my wife or me and my husband again, only to learn 48 hours later that, that, that they've cheated again. Or, or maybe you've, you've gone to the doctor and you got really, really good news. The treatment's working. It's going to be okay. It's going to work out. Come back next time and we'll just verify it's, it's all working the way we think it is. And you go back and you walk out defeated because the news isn't good. Or maybe, maybe, just maybe some of you, you've experienced this where you think that finally things are going right. They're going well with your teenager. You've spent countless hours and countless dollars on trying everything you can to make this relationship right, to make right what's going wrong, and you feel like it's going well, and then it happens again. You've experienced victory, and then you experience defeat, and there's no greater defeat than feeling that failure of defeat after you had a glimpse of victory. And when we reach that low point in our lives, we know God was with us on the mountain. But now we're in the valley, and we can't find him anywhere. The story isn't over, though. In verse 5, I want you to hear what happens to Elijah. Then Elijah lay down and slept under a broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel, an angel touched him and told him, Get up, eat. Elijah looked around, and there beside him, right beside his head, was some bread that was baked on hot stones 
and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank and he lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, Get up, eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the place, by the way, where people meet with God. It's called the mountain of God. And there he came to a cave and he spent the night. And you may remember the rest of the story. Because at that point in the story, God calls Elijah to the mouth of the cave. And right in front of Elijah, this mighty wind, like a hurricane, passes right in front of him. But the Bible says God wasn't in that wind. And then this earthquake shakes the ground and the mountain all around him. But the Bible says God wasn't in the earthquake. And then this fire flashes before him. This wildfire goes right in front of him. But it says God wasn't in the fire. Sometimes you'd expect that, right? When you, when you face failure, when you feel like you failed God, you feel like God's going to come at you like a gale force winner. He's going he's to shake the ground under your feet. He's going to get your attention. He's going to get really mad and get in your face because that's sometimes what we do. It's not what God does. And then it says, there was a sound of sheer silence. God was in the silence. And there on that mountain, God spoke to Elijah. And there on that mountain, Elijah found God again. And here's here's what I want you to know today. I want you to see that when Elijah felt like he was at his lowest low, even when he felt like a complete and utter failure, He was never alone. I want you to see that when when Elijah was at the bottom and didn't think it could get any lower, God was there. And I want you to know that, that when you're tired, God will give you rest. I want you to know that when you're hungry, God, he's gonna feed you, provide for you. I want you to know when you feel like God couldn't, even come close to you because of the failure that you're experiencing, that God could never be more near. And I want you to know this, because I don't think we get this. God sees and God cares. When you're at the bottom, and we've been at the bottom, God sees and God cares. God cared for Elijah, and God cares for you. That's the kind of God we serve. I know we expect God to get angry and mad because, because we're not doing well, but he doesn't. Uh, there's a story just a, a few months ago, in August actually, was the Little League World Series in Pennsylvania. This team from Oregon was playing in, in the Little League World Series, and uh, kid on the, on the pitcher's mound was the coach's son. His name is Isaiah. And his dad, Joel, is the, the head coach for the Oregon team. And he calls a timeout and he walks out to the pitcher's mound. And if you know anything about baseball, when the, when the head ball coach comes out of the pitcher's mound, it's normally not good news, you know? 
You're either going to get berated and told to do better and to throw harder and to, you know, all the different things they tell these pitchers to do, or, or they're going to say, just give me the ball and go play right field. We're going to get somebody else to pitch. And Joel's the head coach, but he's also Isaiah's dad. And it's, you need to watch the video later, but they caught the sound when Joel went out to talk to his son. And he went out and he patted him on the shoulder. And he said to his son Isaiah, he said, hey man, you're doing a great job. And I want you to know I love you. Now get this next batter and have fun. And he walked back to the dugout. <laughs> the video went viral because that's not normal. <laughs> that's not what normally happens in that situation. Some of you need to know God is in the dugout. And he's watching. And even if you feel like you're failing, what his voice is going to communicate to you isn't frustration or disappointment or discouragement. What God, that voice, if you hear that voice, that is always, always, let me hear this if you don't hear anything else. When you hear that voice, that voice is always the voice of the enemy. God's voice is always full of love. You may think the, the opposite of, of fear is faith. It's not. You may think the opposite of fear is courage. It's not. The opposite of fear is love. One of Jesus' closest followers would later write that perfect love casts out fear. So whenever you want to hear the voice of God, here's how you do it. Get quiet, like Elijah. Get still. Try this today. Turn off everything. Put your phone on Do Not Disturb. Set the timer for five minutes and just be completely silent before God. Envision, pull up a chair. Envision God right there sitting in front of you. And be silent before God. And if you get quiet enough, long enough, what you're going to hear is a voice saying these words. I love you. Because you are a son. You are a daughter of God. Church, if you would, stand. You know, there's many people who would look at the cross and think that God's plan was a complete failure. Here's Jesus, the quote-unquote son of God, being murdered, killed on a Roman cross. God's plan to save his people and save the world, maybe, has completely failed. But you know and I know that failure wasn't the end of that story. And failure wasn't the end of Elijah's story. In fact, if you keep reading this story, Elijah goes on to do even greater things for God, if you can even imagine it. And so whatever failure that God is holding over you right now, I want you to know it's not the end of your story either. And you may see something coming at you, barreling down the football field like a six-foot-two, 200-pound human being that you think you can tackle and you don't know if you can. Whatever that fear is that's coming at you right now, failure is not the end of your story. This is a time where we want to just ask our elders to come and pray with you. Every week you, you write these prayer requests on a card, and they're aware of those. They pray over those every week. And some of you, they just know pastorally that, that you need prayer. And we're going to sing a song, and they're going to pray with some people. If you need prayer, feel free to circle up with someone next to you or find one of these people and and put a hand on them, and they'll pray for you as well. What we want to pray is that you would remember who God is, and that God sees, and that God cares. Let's sing.